If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't, please put your hand up. It's a long passage. I want you to be able to see it and go through it and turn then. Once you get that Bible, someone will give you one. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're in a series called Ancient Upgrade. And, and what we mean by that phrase, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is there are things about the church that change always, era to era. The kinds of churches that we start, the ways that we celebrate Jesus in community, the ways we talk about the things that we believe, changes era to era. When it doesn't, the church becomes obviously marginalized, representing another time rather than the time it's called to be a part of. It's the work of the incarnation, taking something that is eternally true and bringing it to a time as Jesus did in in his body. The, The difficult part is we often have a trouble balancing what things to change and what things to keep. So part of what we're talking about is the most important things that do not change and the things that constantly shift. We're in a part of the series that is the core of the Christian faith, the sin qua known. Without this, nothing. What we're talking about, the Christ event. When we're talking about the Christ event, what I mean simply is the incarnation, that God took on human flesh and stood with us, Emmanuel. The crucifixion, that God in flesh died for us and our sins. And the resurrection, that God crucified rose to rule over us. The the entire Christian faith, every piece of theology, rests on the Christ event. If it doesn't, it rests on nothing, and the church quickly loses its way. When you find churches that have theology that don't tie back to Jesus, they're not always sure where they're bringing people. So we really want to focus on this. If, If there's a piece of this series that I would love for Terra Nova to get deeply, it would be the last two sermons in this one that we would just dwell deeply on the Christ event because the danger is knowing these stories. And we can easily convince ourselves, because I know them, because I can recite the facts, because I would assent to a creed, that I get them fully. But we're constantly called to know, to believe, and to do. And that's a part of the church that changes constantly. As our life changes, as we mature, as situations change, The way that we believe and act on these things will change. It calls us to go deeper and deeper. What I mean is these events that stack one on another, because you can't separate them. You can't just talk about incarnation and Christmas without getting to Good Friday and crucifixion. And And you can't just have Good Friday without Easter and the resurrection. What I mean is, in not separating these, past and future collide to create the presence of the church. We're a church that finds ourselves entering into the past at the empty tomb, walking there and opening all the emptiness that's there that we know about. We we hear historically the announcement of angels, the testimony of the women who were eyewitnesses, and then we also look forward to that resurrected Jesus, the same Jesus, it says, who was ascended into heaven will return in that same way. Past and knowledge and faith in that and future and knowledge and faith of that collide to to make the present of the church. It's a vision that if you have both pieces, it changes us. For 23 years, I've 
read and believed the resurrection of Jesus. And what I have found personally is each time I honestly walk back to that empty tomb, there's a part of me that trembles a little bit, that I wonder, will, will I find faith again there? Or will I bring doubt and fear to that emptiness and, and add something that, that can't coexist with the nothingness that God calls us to in a faith in the resurrection? And, and each time I overcome that breathless state and I settle my heart rate and I let my eyes adjust to the light that makes that emptiness visible, I see more. That, that's the challenge of depth that God calls us to, to, to know more, to believe more deeply, and to live this. Here's the roadmap for today. We're going to talk first about the reality of the resurrection. How did Jesus see this? How did the Bible present this? How did the disciples speak of this? Then we're going to talk about the, the possibility that Paul will lay out in the scripture. What if there is no resurrection? How does that change us as a church? And then finally, the, the consequences of the resurrection. What happened as a result of this that changes what we know, how we believe it, and how we live? I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians verses, chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. We'll pray and start getting into the text. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then is coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to recall and to renew belief that you're a God in heaven and on earth, that you're at once transcendent and imminent. We see you in our Lord and Savior Jesus, your perfect and obedient Son. Please help us here today to do what the church must do in every age, to see him, to trust him, and to show him in our time. Through your Holy Spirit, God, would you please make us unified, purified, and clearly identified to ourselves and to the world as yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The resurrection in the Christian church is is one of those moments that becomes our usual rhythm. We come at some point in the year to Easter, and we celebrate. Once we take away the the chocolate rabbits and the baskets and and the, the big ham dinners that really weren't a part of Judaism as they celebrated the Passover. There was no ham. We, we, we find something deeper. We, we find people celebrating, if they understand, something that has changed their world forever. We celebrate that the great chasm, the great fear, the, the terminal end to all humanity has been defeated. That in God, death is no longer to be feared. That he's created a pathway through death and it all lands on Jesus. The message of the Bible is Jesus. We can miss it. We can read the Bible and become sadly and dangerously satisfied with a lot of other things. We can become satisfied with knowledge about the Bible. We start to learn what the contents are, we can parse it out, we can identify pieces of theology and find satisfaction in being able to name those things and identify and quantify things. But we don't believe them on the level God wants us to because all of these things are meant to point to Jesus. Knowledge attracts us and there's something good about learning. But without Jesus, it won't satisfy. It will break down. It's not meant to be the thing that the Bible brings us to. Personal change is part of reading the Bible. The Bible confronts us with where we should not be and corrects us on where we should be. It says that it does this. But if we end up only with personal change, it's not enough. If we fall in love with that, and we just just mark our own spiritual journey and end up being spiritual navel gazers, here's where I'm going, here's where I am now, oh, I slipped a little bit, now I'm here. At some point, you will end up broken and tired from reading the Bible for personal change only, because you will find your inability to change the worst things about you. You will find yourself just pointing them out to yourself again and again and wondering as the years and decades go on, how can I be the man or woman who is still doing this? Who quietly, I still identify myself as as this kind of sinner. I see the things that are broken in me. Personal change is attractive. It's, It's meant to happen. We're told constantly in the scriptures, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't see Jesus in that part, we'll be dissatisfied. For some, the place in the Bible where they will settle is social demonstration. They'll they'll see that the Bible tells us to reach the marginalized people, to care for the widow and the orphan, and they'll they'll rightly challenge the church, we need to do this. 
But if we become people who are satisfied with that and don't see Jesus, we really have nothing. We're just caring for a little while based on some instructions and, and not really sure what we do beyond that because it's meant to be consequential. We discover Jesus, we worship him, and we find in the imitation of him, we are the people like him who reach the marginalized and care for them. But if you find the church in times that, that reaches out in social demonstration but doesn't love Jesus, it quickly becomes empty and dissatisfying. I mean, there's only so many pancake breakfasts you can go to. You, you need more than just good care for people. You, you need Jesus as the consequence that promotes those things. The, the Bible presents Jesus. If you miss that, you miss the greatest thing that God has offered in the scriptures. Satisfaction in him. A, a change in him. A, a new purpose laid out in him. The Spirit's work in putting together this book, the central purpose of him working through the men who wrote it and the men and women who have yielded to it and have died at times for it to preserve it. That the central piece is Jesus. The story of human history has a central figure, Jesus. He's the unifying force in a divided world. He continues to be the unifying force that can fix a divided nation, or divided home, or divided individual heart. And it all comes down to the promise of the resurrection. What we read today was Paul saying, I, I brought you these things of first importance, of all the things the Bible could teach, of all the things that could change your life and make you better off, of all the things you could do to help someone else. Number one, I'm bringing you this thing of first importance, the Christ event, that he died for sin and was raised. And then he says, according to the scriptures. If we just put that in regular language, he's saying multiple times, the Bible says, the Bible says. He died for sin, the Bible says. He rose from the dead, as the Bible says. We must be regular in reading the Bible. If we're ever gonna be the people who find Jesus in the scripture, we actually first have to be reading the scripture and reading it with that right lens before us because it's the book that reveals him, reveals us, and changes us into his people. It brings the presence of the kingdom when we see this resurrected king. If we just read the book and miss that, we become like the Pharisees that Jesus confronted in John chapter five, where he says to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But these are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. There are many times we can just be reading this and not see this, but that, that's not how Paul presents it. Paul presents this book as testifying, and, and remember, when Paul's writing this letter, the New Testament has not been assembled. When reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul sees Jesus. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet is writing 700 years before the incarnation, before the Christ event begins to be revealed, before we see the child, before Mary has the pronunciation from angels saying, you, servant of God, will become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 53, verses eight through 12. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We read that seven centuries later, if we're in the first century. We read that millennium later now, and it's hard for us not to see. This is about Jesus. If you read this to someone, didn't tell them where it was from, and said, who does this sound like? If they were aware of the church story, if they were aware of the Christ when we talk about it, it's hard not to just say Jesus. But then pause. 700 years before the birth of Christ. Paul saw the scriptures as this continuation of promise that was laid out. It was a promise of sacrifice, that that he would come and bear the transgressions. Just like Paul said, I want to remind you, brothers, the first important thing that we believed, of first importance, Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. says that. Our transgressions were poured out upon him. He was cut off. But it also speaks to the resurrection. It says in, in that pain, in that death, he would number many as his, and his life would be extended. And then after he's cut off and dead, he'll make intercession for them. It speaks of the one who's given up in sacrifice, who knew grief and death, living again. So something that isn't fully understood until we come to that place of resurrection. Even Jesus, when he spoke of statements of the resurrection, at times was cryptic about it. He talked about the tearing down of the temple and it being raised back in three days. The disciples had come to Jerusalem and they were from small towns. Archaeologists say where Peter was from, three to 500 people. It makes my town of South Bethlehem, which was 900 people, didn't have a stoplight until 1976 and that was a blinking light, look like a thriving metropolis. And they go to Jerusalem and it's tourist gawking. Look at the big building. I mean, their jaws are just dropping. They're saying, the temple's amazing. They're, they're just swayed by everything that people have built to honor God. And, and Jesus cryptically speaks of the resurrection and says, you know, the temple will be torn down and built back up in three days. No one understands until later what he meant. When the Pharisees come and say in Matthew 12, give us some sign that you are who you say you are and will believe. The reality is he'd already given multiple signs. That's why they began to follow him and challenge him. They they heard the stories of of multiplication of food and and, and the calming of the seas and and the healing of many. They understood, I think, in some peripheral way, this person is exercising a control over all creation. But they wanted something more. When we become the people who just want God to prove to us again and again, we're going to be people who end up like the Pharisees who won't believe. Jesus said to them, you know, you guys are wicked and perverse for even asking. God has laid out so much, and you're asking for more. Here's the only sign you get, the sign of Jonah. Just like he was in the fish for three days and came out, so the Son of God will be in the earth for three days and will rise. No one understood. 
The Old Testament spoke of it, Jesus spoke of it. And then there's this point in Matthew 16 where it says, he began to speak plainly to them. And he told them plainly, when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tried by the powers that are there, found wanting, taken outside the city, crucified to death, and then rise three days later. And the disciples aren't ready to receive it. That's the moment that Peter checks out, loses all sense of he will rise from the dead and return to judge and set up his kingdom, and says it can't be. What I know about God, having you near in this way, this has to stay, may it never be. And it's the moment where Jesus confronts him and says, now you're working on the other team. If God has a plan and you have any part of you that wants to add or take away to that plan, you oppose God and end up being on team Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, to, to, to Peter. It's only after the fact that they really understand. T- turn to Matthew 28. I want us to look at verses 1 through 10. Jesus is delivered up on a, the end of, toward the end of the week and rises on the first day, the Sabbath. The place in the creation story where God rested from the creation is a place where there's nothing but emptiness and rest for the people of God who search after Jesus. 28, one through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment like snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Lo, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They're trying to be faithful with what they know to do. They're sure Jesus died. They understand crucifixion. There's no joy at this point. There's only sorrow and lament. They've lost everything they thought they had that was right and good in their lives. Better than anything they'd ever known before was being close to Jesus for those years. Women elevated to a different spot. Understand some of the critics of the resurrection will say it's not a credible story because women were the first to tell it. This is actually an argument that the Greco-Roman world will throw out. These women knew what it was to be seen as different now. A former prostitute, marginalized from men and women, elevated to a position of close follower. They're seeking to be faithful and honor the dead one. And they come with this message from an angel who says, he's not here, he rose, just like he said. Only after the fact that they understand. Pause. There are moments when seeking after God, we will read the scriptures, we will hear wise counsel about it, and we won't understand. Don't get frustrated. Don't don't jump tracks and say, I can't follow unless it's perfectly clear. That's not how God's laid it out. And I know as well as you the frustration and saying, God, why don't you just make it clearer? He already spoke to them plainly. There are times it's not clear, not because God hasn't worked that issue over and over. 
It's not clear because of who we are. God's plain about certain things. The things you don't understand, keep listening. Mark them off. Even say, this is, this is something I don't understand that God says. I want to keep this before my eyes. I want to keep it on my radar because at some point, it's going to make sense and be revealed. I'm not going to throw away the difficult things. I'm going to keep being faithful step by step. And the angel tells them, it's what Jesus said, he's risen. And they leave with fear and great joy. It's not a bad place to be when you're following God. To be stepping in these places of new ground that, that's beyond what they could have thought of. And find that there's a fear a little bit in following after God. I think that's part of faith. When you don't know and you have to take these steps to follow after him. Where, where rationalism ends and all the arguments about following God, then there's still a gap. When our knowledge of what God has revealed ends and he's still calling us into something else, there's fear. But if you hear him calling, there's joy. And they follow after in that, in that double vein of great fear and great joy, and they run and tell the disciples when they run into Jesus, and, and he tells them, go to Galilee. Skip ahead to verse 16 through 20. We're, we're going to get the reunion piece in Galilee. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They're faithfully following as well. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There's fear and joy. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always to the close of the age. Things he could have said to them before the resurrection that wouldn't have had the power that he has in this moment to say, The authority has already been given to me. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to run away from people accusing you of being near to Jesus. When they only had the cross, that's what happened. It was just death and failure and shame. It was risk of their own lives. It was people coming to Peter and saying, you, you, you talk with the same regional accent. You're, you're from there. You know him, right? Nope. I think I saw you with him. No, not, not me. It all changes after the resurrection. There's no power in the things they were once afraid of, of the religious institutions of the day, maybe being put out of their family. And maybe they're afraid of the Roman soldiers centered all around the occupied city. Those things grow small in the light of the resurrection. And the statements of the disciples end up confirming what Jesus presented. That they were living, believing, and having experienced the resurrected Jesus. They're very honest about some of the most shameful, embarrassing stuff of their lives when they didn't believe in the resurrection. The only reason I think they put that is to show the credibility of their story. They're saying, here's when we ran away. Here's when we're going back to fishing. Here's where I'm, I'm, I'm like losing all courage in front of a servant girl because she mentions Jesus and I'm, I'm trembling to be associated with something else, anything else. And then it changes. The women at the tomb become not women who are mourning and afraid. They become the first evangelists of this good news. Peter, when he speaks in Acts chapter 2, He's in the center of Jerusalem of the temple. The guards are still there, the Roman soldiers who occupy. He's afraid at one point because this is the power that the tip of the spear killed Jesus. Now he stands there, the, the occupying soldiers all around. In our modern world, it would be like being in an occupied place where there's guys with M16s right near you, and they've already killed the leader who's talking the same message that you're about to speak. He's not afraid now. The Pharisees are there, the same guys who set Jesus up. He's not afraid. The unknown people that he was afraid of because of this message are there. He's not afraid. 
And he tells them, this one who was delivered by God to be crucified at the hands of sinful men, God has raised, and he's both Lord and Christ. He's not just the crucified one. He's the one who now has a place of authority and kingliness to him. it's, It's what... Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says he'll rule over all things. He'll defeat all enemies. When Peter is much older and he begins to write the epistles to the church, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, right at the beginning of that first letter, he'll say to the people, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I I think that explains why Peter is not afraid and he's trying to hand that to the church. There'll be moments in the world where you'll say you're a Christ follower and some people will actually attack you verbally for it. Different parts of the world, they may attack you physically for it. There were people who would just dismiss you and diminish you and think you are crazy because you believe the Christ of it. You believe God stood in human flesh. It's ridiculous. You, you believe that he died for sin and that God then stood up, this Jesus of Nazareth, stood up again from the dead. But Peter says, don't be afraid of any of the loss. You have a living hope. You don't just believe doctrine. You don't just know things. You follow after a living Lord and you follow his path and he's already defeated these things, and he holds for you in heaven. No threat, totally secure. He holds for you an inheritance that can't be defiled. Nothing can corrupt it. Even our own sinfulness, our own course of self-defilement and self-destruction cannot overcome what God has for us in Christ. And he tells him it's unfading. It's not something you'll keep for a while, and it'll eventually end up in junkyards or graveyards. But God's power keeps it through faith, and it will be fully revealed. The church spoke this way to the world as well. Justin Martyr writes a letter to the emperor in about AD 150, and he says this, Accordingly, after he was crucified, even all of his acquaintances forsook him, having denied him, and afterwards, when he had risen from the dead and appeared to them, and had taught them to read the prophecies in which all these things were foretold as coming to pass. And when they had seen him ascending into heaven and had believed and had received power sent thence by him upon him and went to every race of men, they taught these things and were called apostles. A century later, when the church is trying to speak to the people in power who don't understand, they go back to the Christ event. It's not clever arguments. It's not the structure of the church. It's not the wealth and beauty of a building. They come back to this one place. He died and nobody followed anymore. He rose and they became people who spoke to every nation of men confidently about this message of one who was risen. It's easy for people to dismiss and say, well, that's what Christians say. You're using the Bible and then you're using people who are giving apologetics, giving a defense of the Christian church to people. What do others outside say? Sometimes historians outside can actually see things more clearly than we do. We have our biases, we get so close, we get myopic, it's hard to see. Josephus. Josephus is not a Christian. He'll say this outright. He's, He's a Jew. And he becomes a Roman citizen, serves as a Roman soldier, and then receives a commission from the emperor to write a history of the Jewish people. 
It'd be easy to say not only is he not a Christian, he could, he could be presented as a hostile witness potentially. But when he writes the history, he can't deny this that has happened in his lifetime. Here's what he says. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among him, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. Josephus, looking outside, said, these people are still here. This event happened, and, and he died. I know these things, like a historian knows them. He rose, and that's what emboldened these people. I know them, like a historian knows them. As far as we know, Josephus never believed them. But he saw and told the emperor and the people, this is what happened in this tribe, this, this group who's identified themselves as something different, Jew and Gentile, people who should be at odds. They're not extinct to this day. And I feel like that sentence just echoes and ripples up until 2012. He was fair and somewhat favorable. Then there's a guy named Lucian of Samostata. He, he's a little more brutal. He's about a century later, and he's a satirist. You know, any guy who's a satirist, you know the guy's going to have a little bit of an edge to him. Here's what he says. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them that by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws." Not favorable in his eyes. We're misguided in his eyes, but, but he tells the truth. Here are these people who, though I think they're fools, though I think they've believed a lie, do some things that are unexpected. They live unafraid of death. They have a singular devotion in their life. Their purpose is purified like no other people. And they actually draw people together that shouldn't be together. In a divided world, they should still be divided. The Bible will talk about it as, as slave and free, the economic divisions closed, as Jew and Gentile, the racial division closed, as male and female, the gender divisions closed. Because everyone comes to the empty tomb with, with nothing but that emptiness anymore. And he says they, they call each other brother. They won't worship other gods. They've, they've given up idols. They, they've stopped putting their hopes and devotion on things that can't hold that weight. It's an outsider saying this. It, it's Pliny the Younger who'll say, I've never been present in examination of Christians. Consequently, I do not know the nature of the extent of punishments usually meted out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation, how far it should be pressed. They declare that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on the first day, Sunday, in remembrance of Jesus' resurrection, to chant verses alternatively amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. And the outside historians understand and enumerate what they saw. 
These Christians believed Jesus died and rose. They worshiped a living being as God. They saw it modeled and passed it to other people. They were no longer afraid of death. It was not the end anymore. Modern skeptics will will still attack and criticize. Bart Ehrman, who who revealed a bias of post-enlightenment man, says this about the resurrection. He suggests, first of all, that there's a whole lot of more realizable stories that, that only the senses would understand, like Jesus' body was taken or, or Jesus' body was devoured by animals. And he says, is this scenario likely? No, not at all. Am I proposing that is what really happened? Absolutely not. It is more probable that something like this happened than that a miracle happened and Jesus left the tomb to ascend to heaven. Absolutely. From a purely historical point of view, a highly unlikely event is far more probable than a virtually impossible one. In his skepticism, at least he got that right, except remove the word virtually. It was an impossible thing that the disciples believed, that they spoke of, that changed them. It was coming to a place where God, who could bring something from nothing, who brought life to the dead, it changed it all. And there's a circumstantial big piece of evidence for the resurrection in what historians don't say. We memorialize the great once they die. We've done it with our own nation's heroes. We know where their tombs are. We know where their headstones are. It's the same with religious leaders. You can go to where Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha, is buried. He died and his tomb is a point of pilgrimage for those people. We know the day on which Muhammad died, and we know where his tomb in Medina is, and people make pilgrimages there. We know where the graves of Christian saints are, and Muslim holy men. Every religion can say, here's the other leaders, and here's where their tombs are. No one at the time said, this is where Jesus was buried. They say he's dead, but that's the place. The the resurrection seems to have taken that. C.F.D. Mool, who is a, a... Scholar at Cambridge University said this, the birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. It's the power of that promise that was made century before because that power rested on the character and the strength of the one who made it. The power of the promise tells us of his quality. The Bible says he can do beyond what we ask or imagine. The disciples heard it said, but they still couldn't imagine that God would stand so near to us, take on our suffering, to take on our sins, to die for them, and to rise to secure that victory. But there have always been those who deny the resurrection. It's important that we at least know what's said. Here are some of the big ones. There are are many ways in which people try to deny it. The the big one is someone stole the body. It's the earliest attempt to discount the resurrection. It's even recorded in the scripture that the the Pharisees said, here's what we need to do. We need to pay off these Roman guards to say, yep, the body was stolen. But if you're investigating this, it begs certain questions. Who stole it? How did they steal it and why? If it's the Pharisees who stole it, they're going to show the body. Here's your leader don't say he's risen. It's the, it's the famous photo of Che Guevara in Bolivia when he's dead. Don't follow that guy anymore. He's gone. No one shows the body. If it's disciples, it's hard to imagine when by their own testimony, they were practically scared of their own shadows when the name Jesus came up after the, the crucifixion. It's hard to imagine 
they would approach the tomb where armed Roman guards were, being that scared and scattered. And then why? Why would they, even if they took the body, why would they then live lives that were akin to holy vagrants and end up giving up their lives all over the world in horrible, torturous deaths if they knew it's all a con? It's just a big shell game. We've hidden the body and we're telling a story about the resurrection. It makes no sense. There are those who'll say it's a delusion, mass hysteria. That one's really hard. Delusions tend to be pretty private. When a guy says, I'm Napoleon, there's usually not 10 other people with him. And 500 later, go, that, that guy's Napoleon. He's short and has power. And no, it tends to be one deluded person who sees these things. But Paul was so clear to say, first Peter saw it, then, then, then the others in the, who were apostles in the 12, and then 500 other brothers. They, there were these appearances that were happening to multiple people. To say it was delusion would be the most unique delusion. And we also know some people are more prone to these things than others. But all the people who were followers began to see it, regardless of their type and personality. One of the hardest ones for me to imagine that people came up with is the swooning theory that Jesus got a little faint on the cross and when he had passed out and managed to control his heart rate, people thought he's dead. Understand, the Romans who crucified him had this as a task. These were most likely professional executioners. They had killed a lot of people. I once talked to a believer who was a former Navy SEAL and he was telling me his testimony and he said, one day I just killed one too many people. And, and I wanted to say, so the day before you had killed just the right amount, but you don't say that to former Navy SEALs. I was listening to him talk about Jesus, but these were guys who probably couldn't count the number of people that they had executed. There's gotta be a learning curve. When you've done anything enough times, it gets a little bit boring and predictable. They watched Jesus struggle and die they didn't break his legs like they usually did to people. Why? Because people would press up with their feet to try to get some air into their lungs as they were suffocating on the cross. They didn't bother breaking his shins. They'd seen dead men. They knew it was a dead man. Just to make sure so they wouldn't get killed later for doing the wrong thing, one of them took a spear and pressed it up and water and blood came out. Doctors tell us he probably punctured the heart sack. Someone who's asphyxiated, there would be water and blood that would come out then. They knew. The disciples asked for the body. They knew. This was a dead man. They put him in the tomb, and the swoon theory says is that they wrapped him up literally with pounds of cloth in which a live person would probably suffocate, that this highly wounded, pierced hand, pierced feet, sword up, or spear up through the chest and, and wrapped and suffocated, left out for three days in, in, in the elements of a cave, got up, moved the rock by himself, and then presented himself looking like an extra from the walking dead to the disciples and convinced them, this is a heroic victory. I know I don't look so good right now that I'm kind of bloody and, and not doing well. It, it's an impressive theory. It honestly probably takes a lot of faith to believe that. But it really doesn't convince anyone, I don't think. There's a new theory that's invented by these scholars called the Jesus Seminar. You may have heard them. I'm going to tell you how that thing worked, and I promise you I'm not making it up. You can look on their website themselves. I'm, I'm not just trying to disparage them. We got 150 people in the room, and they handed them beads, a red bead, a pink bead, a gray bead, and a black bead. As they read Bible passages, they played like this game of rock, paper, scissors with the beads, right? People would put out their bead to vote. Red bead meant, Jesus said that. Pink bead, Jesus might have said that. Gray bead, 
probably unlikely that he said it. Black bead, there's no way he said it. So they'd read a passage, and they would all drop their beads in the middle, and they'd count them up and go, well, 78 of us agree that Jesus didn't say that, so that's stricken and gone. This was their scholastic method for determining what happened. The resurrection got voted down. That was black beaded for some reason. And they had to come up with something. So what they said was his body was put in a shallow grave and dogs ate the body. It's hard to even believe how, how much you have to work to deny what the scripture said. Stuff that, if, if this historical documentation was found about anything else that happened in that period, historians would have a field day. There would be press conferences of how much was found out about a, a Near Eastern country or a Roman emperor if this kind of first century data was ever discovered in that volume. They have to deny that. Then they have to ignore historians and what they represented who weren't Christian and, and make up things like that. But what if there was no resurrection? Paul goes through this whole process of saying, if the dead aren't raised, if Christ isn't raised, here's what's true now. The consequences become enormous. It's not a good story anymore. It's a dark and condemning fact for the church if the resurrection isn't real. If we believe anything else about the resurrection than what the scriptures say, the, the empty tomb, that we come there with nothing else. We're not just less, there's a complete failure. The church in any age has failed when it denies the resurrection. But Paul says this, he says, our, our message is a lie, we're misrepresenting God. If we as a church ever say, he, he rose in our hearts, we're a failure. We, we don't represent God rightly, we, we, we've lied. The text lies. This text that promised 700 years before this one will, will rise. We become simply the nightmare end of the Enlightenment age. We can't handle that something beyond our senses happened, and we become selfish people who look only to ourselves as the determiners. We're dropping beads on what God has said. We can't accept the impossible or the God of the impossible. What's left for us? Empty consumerism, that we get enough stuff to try to satisfy the emptiness of the impossible God living with us and dying for us and rising over us. Our own idols that many of us have left because they realize they were never designed to hold the weight of God. The comfort of being forgiven is gone forever. You're, you're still in your sins, Paul says. Don't, don't tell yourself a lie. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no promise of the power of the cross anymore. Jesus is simply dead. The cross had lost all power. And preaching becomes a dark, dark thing that leads other people in the darkness. Because we're no longer preaching the main point of scripture, we're probably gonna end up with moralism of some sort, where we're just telling people, here's, here's the standard, here's the rules about Christianity, and the resurrection taken away leads to a horrible hopelessness. There'll be some people who say, why? Teach the good things, that's, that's the stuff that really matters in the Christian faith, doing these good things. Because of this, if we tell people, here's the standard, here's what we want you to live out, we're condemning them to one of two terrible places of bondage and self-torture, pride or shame. There'll be those who will look at all the things you're supposed to do and say, I don't do it. I let myself down every day. I, I, I help ruin the world. I disappoint my family. I am a terrible person. I am the cancer on the body of the earth. And they just walk around in this horrible bondage that can't find grace. It can't go to the empty tomb and find emptiness. All it finds is stacks and stacks of their own sin with no risen Jesus. Or pride. 
people who say, you know what? I think I've actually lived up to the standard. But really, I'll just end up pointing at someone else. It's the Pharisee who prays in the temple. Thank God I'm not like the tax collector. That guy's like really obviously bad. So I must be really good. Moralism, the, the bondage of that gospel ultimately leads to a self-importance that divides people. We're not brothers anymore. The educated will say to the uneducated, we're better than you because we know more. The uneducated will say, we're better because we're authentic. We're not, we're not part of the ivory tower crowd. Genders will say to each other, here's why we're better. Races will say, you know what? Our origins are different. Our power currently is what it is, and, and that means we're better. The bondage of moralism leads to all the divisions of the world. Someone has to be better, and we will fight tooth and nail to defend that because that becomes our gospel. It's the only way we feel some sense of reconciliation. When we show up at the empty tomb and we're not looking for the resurrected Jesus, all we have then is our shame to bring or our pride to bring. I heard a statement this week that was good and simple and powerful. It said, gospel means good news, not good advice. Good advice is something that will change us. We, we look for something wrong in ourselves or someone comes to us who's pointed out and said, here's my advice for you. News happens beyond us, whether we're looking for it or not. Bombing in Beirut, okay, that happened. I didn't ask for that to happen. It doesn't directly impact me, but that's news. Sometimes news will directly impact us. And the gospel is not good advice. It's news that overcomes everything we have been and presents us with a new day, the consequences of the resurrection. The first that Paul closes with in that passage we read today is that Jesus rules. It's what Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He, he has all authority under him. Then comes the time, the end, when he delivers the kingdom. He's seated as king, the right hand of the Father. It's the regal inauguration. It's what we lost and didn't understand, that God's over us. We can end a lineage of disappointing people who ruled over us. We can stop being mad and disappointed with mom and dad. We can stop being angry at governments that, that aren't doing the heroic things we expect them to do. Jesus is king. The forgiveness of sins, that was the thing of first importance. Of all the things Paul could say the Bible are about, that's the good news. It's the undoing of all that is wrong with us from the start. From Adam and Eve who sinned against God and, and saw in the book of Genesis the haunting presence of sin. You read the genealogies and it's easy to get bogged down. It's just lists of people being born, but see it differently. It's an unending obituary. After sin, when we're supposed to have life with God, all we find is death. This one was born and he died. He had this one, he died. And then this one died, 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 died. That's all we find in Genesis after the fall. But now we find forgiveness of sin in the heartbreaking series obituary ends. Jesus died and he rose again, the first fruits that others who believe in him will also rise. John's gospel presents him not just as, as the new king, but the new man. The, the world leader of the time, Pilate, when he brings Jesus out, says, behold the man. It's the replacement of Adam. Paul says, in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive. Pilate was more right than he knew when he informed the crowd. Behold the man. Ecce homo is the Latin. There's a, there's a famous painting in Spain uh, called Ecce homo. It's the presentation of the man. And it was fading and chipping. And this old woman this year decided, who went to the church, I'm going to help the church. I'm going to restore this old work of art. 
She was not a trained artist. She had no training in restoration. She went home and got her paint-by-number kit and painted until it was basically a Muppet of Jesus. She just covered the thing, and it looked horrible. I, I see this now, as, as horrible as it was, as a picture of the gospel. That, that if we end up bringing ourselves to the presentation of the new man, that we have to fix it. It doesn't look right to have a beaten Jesus. It doesn't look right that, that he's crucified. He, he starts to look faded and failed. And we try to add something. We end up ruining it. If you come to the empty tomb with anything but your own emptiness and the emptiness God has prepared, you will never live in grace. You will not know the joy of the man who is the new leader, no longer following Adam but him. If you try to do anything, you won't have joy because you'll work so hard to keep that one thing you hold on to. It's a stumbling block to the Greco-Roman world, a scandal to them. They want power. It's a stumbling block, Paul says, to the Jews who want a series of unending miracles. But it's the beginning of the new covenant. And it's the stuff of covenants. The covenant with David when God says, from you will come a leader who will never die. He'll rule forever. David couldn't do it on his own. It's the covenant with Abraham who lays almost asleep as though dead as the presence of God walks through the split animals, the sign of the covenant saying, may it be to me if I don't keep this, and they do nothing. To say, the crucifixion where Christ is alone. The resurrection, the details of which you don't get to know because it was all on Jesus and only he was there, is the new covenant. That's power broken, the binding covenant now like a marriage of of Christ to his people. And it's a, a new week, that Sabbath day, a new world and a new work. Tim Keller wrote this. On the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, the, the day that everything sad comes untrue. I love that phrase for the gospel. Everything sad comes untrue. On that day, the same thing will happen to your own hurts and sadness. You will find the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your return to the light. On that day, all of it will be turned inside out. You will know joy beyond the walls of this world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar you bear. So live in light of the resurrection and renewal of this world and of yourself in a glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace. This new age begins with frightened but faithful people who who are blessed again. When Jesus gathers them, he'll he'll breathe into them, it says, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, we're back in Genesis with that unanimate clay. God breathes in the breath of life, and man understands he's alive and has purpose now. The disciples begin to live like that. The resurrection is not an end. It's a beginning. See, we get the resurrection wrong as Christians. When we look at the resurrection as my means to get to heaven, Jesus died and he's alive, so I get to go there. It's the place where heaven and earth now overlap. We don't want to be the people in a great house that keep God sequestered upstairs, and someday we'll go upstairs. This is the place where upstairs and downstairs become one because of the resurrection. These these men and women take on a whole new purpose. Jump to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. This is what Paul will say after presenting all this evidence on the resurrection, all the theological importance of the resurrection. He'll say in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, power of the sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the point of all of this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There becomes a purpose, the the purpose of representing worship before God, the, the purpose of living out even these good works. There were no chapter divisions, and 16 begins with Paul asking for money for other saints. This is going to take life. It's the merging of the kingdom. We pray that kingdom come, that will be done. It now makes sense. The kingdom is here and inaugurated. We're living out this representation of the kingdom. You won't be separated by God. You can take that risk. 
the end of your sorrows and the dawn of this new day. And there's a missional direction and courage to a believer in the resurrection that even the outsiders saw. They're not distracted by the things that Jesus speaks of as choking out the spiritual life in the parable of the sower. We live in a moment now before all the hope that we live by faith is fully imparted. But it's that faith that gives us direction. The band's going to come up and we're going to celebrate communion, sometimes called the Eucharist or the, the giving of thanks. It collapses those two moments of past and future where we look back and remember the cross and, and the broken body of Jesus who died for us. But it says we're to celebrate this until the Lord returns and, and we look for that future. In this moment, all the divisions end. People come to Jesus from every background and we're called something greater. It makes odd ones come together as one. The world still won't understand if we actually live this out rightly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you and ask again that we would hear the presentation of the Christ, that you stand with us. We are not forsaken. We are not forgotten. We are not alone. Speak truth over any lies that would interfere with that. God, call us again to the cross that you would and only you could die for us. Only you could undo the unrighteousness of an entire fallen race with your eternal perfect righteousness. Only you could make that sacrifice and offer it to us. And Lord, it didn't end there. Your resurrection declared all of this true. The moment of waiting, could it really be true, was found at that empty tomb. So Lord, we pray as a church that you would help us again to be called the people of Christ, believing fully on the presentation of him. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.